Well, eating disorders have rather been neglected. I mean, when I trained in medicine, girls with anorexia nervosa were admitted to medical wards uh, and they're in a side room. And I remember being on ward rounds and everybody would be waiting outside and the consultant and the lead nurse would go inside. And then sort of a few years later when I was qualified and then I thought I'd do psychiatry, just by chance the first job I was allocated to was um, to the eating disorders. So, But that obviously resonated with me because... As a schoolgirl at um, grammar school, I had a, a peer in my class who, you know, none of us knew what it was, but in hindsight, she had anorexia and had to leave the school and things. At medical school, again, another peer with anorexia nervosa. So um, there was a lot of it about, but uh, it wasn't really known about. And, and I mean, the history of anorexia is very interesting in terms of guys and St. Thomas's uh, because it was Sir William Gull, the physician who named it. He had meetings and uh, discussed the cases. And then Ryle, who's famous for a Ryle tube, a physician a bit later in the 30s, was able to accumulate a, a case series of 51 um, and describe them. But again, it had this medical uh, aspect considered to be not, not a psychiatric. And so I started at the Maudsley in the early 80s uh, and the specialised psychiatric units were only just had been developed. I, I'm not exactly sure how long it, uh, Gerald Russell had started his unit at the Maudsley, but perhaps the mid 70s uh, or beginning of the 70s. Uh, and he'd what he was doing was something very exciting uh, that I joined, was able to see, was doing a, a trial comparing psychological treatments, which, you know, everybody had said, oh, you can't do trials of psychological treatments um, at that time. Um, but it was comparing individual versus family therapy. Uh, and that trial um, was very impressive uh, in that it did, he was very clever in terms of stratifying the, the patient groups and he randomized them according to whether they were early interventions and short duration or early in that they're in childhood, but they'd had the illness for over three years or they were late onset over 19. So his clinical hunches meant that he'd got this rather nice design and he found that the family work uh, was better with those with an early, early onset and short duration and, and so and, and that stood the test of time and uh, my colleague Ulrika Schmidt has been uh, making sure services really crack on to get early interventions to get the best outcome uh, and, and that appears to be doing well but what we're, what we're still struggling with is what about those people who haven't responded in the early phase of their illness or haven't presented for treatment uh, until a lot longer? And we're rather stuck on that. And uh, so often people still need to be admitted to hospital because when I started, everybody was admitted to hospital and that's changed. Uh, most people aren't, but there are a group that do need hospital treatment. And sometimes they have a bit of a revolving door. Uh, and and that, that's a problem that we haven't sorted out yet. 
that's just the story of anorexia nervosa. And then we've had bulimia nervosa and all the binge spectrum disorders, which is sort of rather allied in some ways, similar and some ways different to obesity, have joined. And so we've got this ever expanding category of eating disorders, uh, which is rather can be rather confusing because people talk because there are these differences and differences in the epidemiology differences in the risk factors um and and so um there's been a lot more advances in treatment for the binge spectrum disorders they do respond to cbt quite well and we get much better results we get sort of 70% recovery by five years, whereas it's only 30% recovery for anorexia. So there's a big difference there. Um, but looking at the risk factors, be because of the different sorts of illness and how you recruit them, um, we haven't got as much on early risk factors for bulimia and for instance, genetics, as we have for anorexia now. Relatives, the government are very distressed that unfortunately the mortality of anorexia is quite high and, and people are interested in looking at this. And part of it is because anorexia and eating disorders have been underfunded. It hasn't kept up with the increasing epidemiology and research hasn't uh, hasn't come into it part of that is sort of a feeling they were social conditions chosen uh, and one of the things I've appreciated in my lifetime career is working with people with lived experience either carers or patients and they've been determined that people look for the biological uh, associates and so they they were the ones who drove and get uh sponsored, you know, did sponsored cycling to get PhDs looking at the brain in eating disorder, uh, starting develop cohorts uh, to do genetics. And so it's their beginnings that then led to us uh, looking at the biology more. And of course, that's been really very interesting because the biology of anorexia, the genetics, has been a rather surprising uh, in that. Yes, there was some, you know, with the, the GWAS studies, the um, genetic wide association. Yes, there is um, some association with psychiatric disorders, especially obsessive compulsive disorder. But what was surprising were the negative correlations with metabolic aspects. Uh, and it's the, 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 the opposite of metabolic syndrome that you get associated with diabetes and obesity. So you get people with insulin sensitivity and, and low cholesterol, but high levels of high cholesterol and, and low BMI in their, their um, pattern of, of the, their profile. And we haven't fully got the results on bulimia and binge spectrum yet, but it looks as though they're going to be the opposite. They're going to map on uh, risk factors for similar to obesity. So that just highlights some of these similarities and differences. And that's, you know, so then that's sort of showing that these are psychosomatic disorders. It is uh, body and mind. And perhaps it's not surprising it was in medicine and um, now is in psychiatry. And countries like Germany have a special um, speciality, psychosomatic medicine. Um, but we've never had that. But uh, 
Anorexia probably is a very good example of that, these eating disorders uh, would be. So there's the, the, I've seen that change and, and, and associated with that, people were interested in looking at the brain and, and what we find is that the brain does suffer mainly because of the secondary effects of starvation or, or the nutritional problems. Uh, and so, uh, for instance, the brain... In, in in adolescence, pretty soon after with anorexia nervosa, uh, they've lost six percent of their brain substance. It's reversible uh, if they correct their nutrition, um, but it's there and it's associated with uh, neuropsychological problems. Uh, you know, their memory isn't as good. They have brain fog. Um, their the, um, attention isn't as good uh, and visual spatial skills aren't as good. But you're talking about a very high level of functioning to the beginning. So, you know, simple tests, they still might be in the normal range. But when we ask people about these things, they do have this either recollect when they've recovered this sort of brain fog time or um, might, might recognise it themselves. Uh, when but, but it's very difficult because, as I say, they start off at a high level anyway. I'm interested in your thoughts on how much progress we've made in the last couple of decades, particularly, and what you see happening in terms of the kind of way the, the set of illnesses and disorders are kind of viewed by society. It feels like it's still a massively stigmatised set of disorders. Yes, eating disorders are stigmatised, both anorexia and the binge spectrum, but for different reasons. So anorexia nervosa has been sort of slightly uh, stigmatised because it's, as I say, thought to be choice and uh, people... Uh, you know, being vain, really, and 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 over-concerned with their body, um, and 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 the fact that they are privileged white, privileged uh, females, uh, again, sort of is is part of that stigma, because uh, only ten percent are males, and so you know, perhaps these are relegated as women's problems that aren't as important as men's problems. So that's one source of stigma. But what we do know now with this expanding epidemiology of the Bing spectrum, where we're getting a different profile and we're getting people uh, with higher weights uh, associated with diabetes and other aspects uh, related to higher weights. Uh, and, and of course, they, they undergo weight stigma and weight stigma even may have been a trigger uh, and often is a trigger because they're often, uh, even as young children, born higher weight, suck more strongly when they're little and have been higher weight throughout childhood and then um, get teased and alienated uh, because of this weight stigma that's so common in, in, in our as a society. The, the concerns about weight and shape are much more firmly fixed with uh, the bulimic spectrum than perhaps they are with anorexia, where there's a bit of a feeling that there is. When you look, people are now looking in more detail what's going on. And it's not always the case that it's related to weight and shape. There are other issues uh, that are there. <laughs> How's that changed over time? I mean, thinking about the 19th century and how we viewed these sorts of conditions, 
how has that kind of cultural view of eating disorders developed? Yes, well, people didn't really know what was going on. So they just, they initially sort of thought of it as metabolic an endocrine disturbance. Uh, but, you know, in America, there was a phase for treating it uh, as a hormonal disorder. Um, but the main treatment was, you know, nourishment and being in hospital. Um, then the idea, then why and how it went into psychiatry. Uh, Hilda Brook was um, a psychoanalyst and she wrote a lot about it and wrote a lot about obesity as well uh, and, and sort of brought these more psychological aspects to the fore. But if you read Ryle's case descriptions, the 51 in 1930, he details, you know, perhaps uh, the, the sort of adversities that we see in childhood for a lot of uh, people with psychiatric disorders. We do see these common predisposing factors uh, and then perhaps triggers a stressful event uh, that might trigger off the behaviour. So um, they're very akin uh, to a lot of psychiatric disorders, particularly the binge spectrum. You, you have more minorities, adversities, alienation, etc. You don't get that as much with it, but it's more of a personality style um, that this perfectionism, not tolerating uh, uncertainty, um, getting comorbidity with autism spectrum disorder that occurs in some and, and with obsessive compulsive disorder. So there's, there's variations in the predisposing factors um, whereas the triggers tend to be the same, there might have been um, a negative energy balance, but it might not just be for de uh, because of uh, dieting. It may be, I remember hearing a case of a young boy, he was, um, at, you know, sort of 12, 14, so in his growth spurt, uh, and he was rowing or something very uh, intensely. Uh, and, you know, his diet, the, the, the parents and himself were rather careful with diet, so they didn't think to increase the diet with all of this going on. And so he, he got into a negative energy deficit and, and got triggered into anorexia, you see, without wanting to do that at all. So sometimes people just fall into it. Uh, and uh, so either you've got a metabolism that you fall into it and then you can't get back to normal levels or you've got a metabolism that overshoots a bit and, and takes you a bit higher and then you get into this oscillating dieting uh, restraining uh, of binge eating disorder. And do we see that same kind of incidence and prevalence of these sorts of conditions globally? What's the difference in different cultures and nations? Yeah, well, I think globally that they are very similar. Um, but of course, they didn't really, in some countries, they weren't recognised. I remember uh, eating disorders weren't recognised in Russia. Uh, and, the, and the first Russian unit was only developed about five years ago. And I went over there and did some training. And it was classified more as a schizopsychotic illness in Russia. Uh, that was anorexia nervosa. Uh, and of course, patients don't necessarily recognise it as an eating disorder or psychiatric. Well, they do recognise it as a problem with emotions. So people with bulimia, that they will go to their GP talking about their emotional distress, 
but they're shamed and, and not sure whether the binge eating is a symptom you talk about and, and is expected as part of an illness. And of course, people with anorexia, classically, uh, you know, a, a French psychiatrist noted, they say, I do not suffer, therefore I'm well. And the classical problem, they don't see themselves as ill and in need of treatment, uh, and they see nothing wrong. I'm interested in the, the discussion that we had at the conference a few weeks ago, the London Eating Disorders Conference. You, you're part of that panel discussion where you were looking at the kind of last 30 years of that organisation and research and services and what's happened and huge amount of change over that period of time. And you kind of came away from that discussion with lots of big, urgent questions that we now need to answer. Having had a few weeks to kind of reflect on that, what, what do you think you brought away from that what is the kind of real driving force now for people who work in this field well I, I think we've we've done pretty well <laughs> uh, if we, with the minimal resources and but I think the big one is people with persistent uh, eating disorder so the early interventions and working with families we've we've learned that working with families even with older ones is really useful um but it's what to do about these people that, who've been ill for over three years and have got into this very stuck state uh, and but there's a lot of interest in sort of working on this and thinking we know what are the comorbidities or the differences and the moderators of of why this happens and so I talked already about autism a, a subgroup have got autism spectrum and they they have tend to have a worse outcome and of course their autism persists you know so you've still got that and so you've got the mental aspects of that but also another big feature is depression and a subgroup get a, a lot of depression and they just don't respond to standard antidepressants um, but of course now you know quite a lot of people with depression don't respond to standard antidepressants and so these new ways of treating resistant depression such as TMS deep brain stimulation and the newer psychedelic type drugs sort of really do offer a potential perhaps uh, and so there's a lot of interest. My colleague again, Ulrika Smith, did a, a, a small study uh, with TMS and finding that there was a response of the depression early on. And then a year later, you know, the eating disorder was less bad. So that might work. Some people have been, you know, putting, doing the more invasive deep brain stimulation and, and getting some good response. But with time, it takes time. Um, but people are now interested in these antidepressants that are less invasive and maybe work quicker. They do work quicker. And so there are studies already. We've just started a study on psilocybin at the Maudsley, you know, had our first patient sort of coming in yesterday. Um, so so there's great interest in this and interest also in ketamine. So is that augmenting existing kind of psychotherapies with a psychedelic Yes, yes, yes. I mean, so so there was a you know there's you know how somehow early on in treatments there's always two sides and the sort of 
the, the psychotherapists felt that those people with the drugs weren't much good and so sort of uh, uh, poo-pooed them. Uh, whereas, you know, now perhaps we can work in synchrony uh, and appreciate each other. Uh, and, you know, that, that having some drugs as, as well as therapy also. It's interesting when you look at the stigma literature and you look at how mental health professionals view mental health patients, there's lots of differences depending on how we've kind of categorised the patient and their problem, you know, and there's certain conditions which are very much um, more stigmatised because there's this sense that, you know, you've brought it on yourself. Eating disorders is a good example of that. Personality disorders maybe another one. You know, the sense that people are too difficult to help you know, because there's so much pushback. Um, and I wonder what you think needs to change in services to kind of bridge that gap so that we can actually offer them the same compassion and levels of care that we offer everybody else. Well, I think it's already begun. So I know I've, you know, I said I've really valued people with lived experience as carers or patients. And, and that is so critical and and as i said there are peers they're medical students they're psychology students and 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 they, they develop their illness so often at university in front of our eyes uh and sort of but of course people sort of were shunned and and they hid away whereas now people are valued and and hearing their stories and their experience and, and using it within therapy, uh, there's been such a big turnaround and that has enriched eating disorders in, enormously um, because they're, they're so insightful and, you know, so we can understand the phenomenology in much greater depth rather than, you know, uh, from the outside. What do you think other areas within mental health can learn from your talk? at the conference, even if people aren't interested in eating disorders, what can they learn from the way that you've done your work in this field? Well, I think, you know, well, I think every, all of psychiatry probably is uh, you using and benefiting from lived experience. We're very lucky because people can get the dual qualifications. They can be lived experience and they can be psychiatrists and clinical psychologists as well. And though that's so that is so rich, uh, having that dual skill approach. So I think more than any other area we we do have more educated um and patients with anorexia nervosa anyway so maybe that helps um and i think it is a very good example of, about all the mixture of risks that get intertwined and entangled and then physical factors can make things get worse and you know if sleep gets disturbed if nutrition gets disturbed so I, I think they're a good example of how we have to have this very holistic approach to psychiatry just not one thing we've got to consider sort of so many facets mm -hmm.